Let's go ahead and let's go before the Lord in prayer, ask for His blessing of the reading and preaching of the Word this morning. Our Father, we do pray that You would quiet any storms within, that You would quiet any storms without this morning. We might be still and quiet in Your presence, that we might hear Your still small voice, the same still small voice that You spoke to Elijah with. As we hear the word read this morning, that as we hear it explained, that it would be your voice that is reverberating within our minds and our hearts and our very souls. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, this is the Holy Inerrant Word of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I grew up in Springfield, Illinois, which is 
the hometown of Abraham Lincoln, and so everything in that town revolved around Abraham Lincoln. And so it was a little bit of a shock to me, or a lot of a shock to me, when I took my first pastorate in rural North Carolina, and if you said the name Lincoln, it was like saying a curse word. It was only one name that was worse than St. Lincoln, and that was the name Sherman. If you said Sherman, you uh, would create quite a stir. The reason being, of course, for many Southerners, Sherman is a vile figure because you will remember at the close of the Civil War there in 1864 and 1865, especially that he cut a swath through the southern states where he just laid destruction on his way in his march to the sea. He is especially considered a villain because of what happened on February 17, 1865, when he arrived at the sea in Columbia, South Carolina, the capital. His Union troops marched into the city, and the Union troops and the black population of that city celebrated in the streets. Uh, they partied through the night and danced in the streets, and they drank an awful lot of alcohol. Uh, and during the night, what happened was this fire spread through the town. Now, there were fires that were already ignited because the city had been part of the battle and in the sacking of the city, but what happened during the night was there were a huge gusts of wind that went through the city and carried those sparks from some of those fires to some of the cotton bales that were stacked up and ignited them on fire, which ignited houses on fire and ignited places of employment on fire and commercial places on fire. But in the southern mind, many would say that no, this was an act of Sherman that he had told his drunken troops that night to set the city of Columbia on fire as a final way to deal a death blow to the Confederacy. On the next day, on February 18, 1865, a committee of local women approached Sherman, and they asked him this question, why did you burn our town or allow your army to do so? And Sherman's answer did not do anything to alleviate the hatred of the South for him. This was his reply to this committee of women. I did not burn your town, nor did my army. Your brothers, sons, husbands, and fathers set fire to every city, town, and village in the land when they fired on Fort Sumter. That fire kindled then and there by them has been burning ever since and reach your houses tonight. The black population of the city of Columbia welcomed Sherman as a deliverer because he was for them. The southern white population found him to be no deliverer, rather as Sherman seemed to imply in his response to this committee of women, he came in judgment for what they had done previously. The same person, the same moment, but two different experienced realities. 
very different. I want to give you three points here this afternoon in the sermon. First, the Son of Man is coming in glory and judgment. The Son of Man is coming in glory and judgment. Second, our identities shall be revealed on that day. Our identities shall be revealed on that day. And then third, we shall each receive judgment according to our identity. We shall each receive judgment according to our identity. First, the Son of Man is coming in glory and judgment. We need to notice this again, what we have seen week after week for about a month and a half or two months now in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus says time and again as a warning and as a promise to His disciples and to the crowds that He is coming again. It is not a matter of if Jesus is coming. You will notice in the text here that He says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes, He's coming. And we can't say that enough. We can't reiterate it enough because all of life is to be influenced and shaped in light of the fact that the Son of Man is coming. He's coming. And when He comes, He doesn't come as a baby born of a virgin in a cattle stall. He will not be marked with humility as He was in His first coming. This time, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, He comes in glory. You remember that great prayer of Jesus's, the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus's in John 17. And you remember that when He is praying, He prays this to His Father. He says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He goes on to pray, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This glory was always His. The Son of God, the Son of Man, always had glory. In eternity past, He had glory. But what He says is in that first coming, in His incarnation, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, and as John prayed this morning, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled Himself. In that first advent, He came in humility. In the second, He comes in glory. He tells us that when He comes, there shall be an angelic army that will descend with Him upon the clouds. We're told in other passages of Scripture that when He comes, He shall shine as bright as the sun in the sky. There will be no mistaking it. When He comes, every single person will know that He is the King of glory. And even as He comes in glory, so He comes in judgment. 
We're told in verse 31, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He doesn't come as the servant this time. He comes as the king and he comes as the judge of all of the earth. He will not bow. He will not suffer. He will not be ruled or mocked or spit upon or crucified. He will judge and he will rule. Who will he judge? The answer is found in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations. That is shorthand for saying that he will judge every single person. Everyone. Everyone from the beginning of time to the end of time will be gathered before him on that last day, before his judgment throne, and he will judge them. None will escape this judgment. When I was a, a child, I would uh, go to my grandparents' house, and my cousins would meet me there, and we would play hide-and-seek together. And we would play hide-and-seek in the whole house, but I always went to the basement to hide, because I discovered one day that my grandma, she had this this storehouse room that had a door on it, and it seemed like the whole thing was enclosed. But I figured out one day that, you know what, this isn't an enclosed room. The one side of the room felt like it was enclosed, but it was really just a whole bunch of shelves. And on those shelves were different canisters and different jars and different boxes of things that she had accumulated. And I figured out that all you had to do was move a few of those things on the bottom and you could kind of slip through to the bigger part of the basement. And so I became the king of hide-and-seek. Because any time my cousins came down and they went into that storehouse room, I quickly darted into the bigger part of the basement. And when they came back out and came to the bigger part of the basement, I quickly darted back into the storehouse room. On that last day, there is no such hiding from him. We will see him clearly. He will see us clearly. And he will gather us all together before him. And when he gathers us all together before him, he gathers to judge us. All that mocking, all the rebellion, all the deriding of faith, all the wickedness, all of the evil, all of the hatred, all of the sin will be judged. Christ won't allow any of His enemies to have any measure of victory. It may appear like it on this side of glory that they have the upper hand, but He is King in totality. And that means that every part of this world, every sphere of creation, every life and every portion of our lives will be subjected to Him. And judgment will be rendered and all, all will be held accountable. You have that picture in Psalm 2 where the, the psalmist is talking about the kings of the earth, the most powerful on the earth, and how they are planning and plotting together to, to, to plot against the Lord's anointed, against the Son of God. 
And it looks like they have the upper hand. The psalmist says that the Lord's anointed, the Son of God, He just laughs in heaven. It's a laugh of derision because it's so silly. It's such a feeble attempt. Why? Because the king has been set on Zion, and as the psalmist says, all the nations have been given to him as a heritage, as his inheritance. All the nations belong to him. Every single person is his. Every portion of this world is his. And so when he comes back, he comes to exercise judgment over all that is his. All. Second, let us recognize that our identity shall be revealed on that day. Our identity shall be revealed on that day. Jesus uses the analogy of sheep and goats to speak of that last day of judgment. At His time, sheep and goats would graze out in a pasture field together, but at night you would have to separate them because the goats couldn't stay out there roaming or they would freeze to death. The sheep could withstand it, but not the goats. And so you would bring the goats together and you would bring them in. And there would be a separation for the night. And Jesus is saying, just like that, on the last day, the goats and the sheep shall be separated from one another. The goats shall be swept off to the left, and the sheep shall be shepherded off to the right. And for the sheep, that judgment day will not be a day of fearfulness. It won't be a day of anxiety. It will be a day like that black population of the city of Columbia. It will be a day of, of dancing in the streets. you imagine this with me, that you have been brought to a courthouse because you are being brought up on trial, and you are waiting your turn to enter into that courtroom, and as often as the case with courtrooms, they have these two big wooden doors on them that always swing outward, and there's a bailiff standing there at those doors, and you're waiting there outside with a measure of anxiety, a measure of fear. Because you know that when your case is called, you have to go in. And you know that this is a trial by that judge that sits there. And you know that this has ramifications for the rest of your life. And those doors, they finally swing open. And the light from the room floods your eyes and you're trying to adjust as you walk in and then you see what you expect to see. You see a judge figure sitting up high above everybody else looking over the room. And as your eyes go to that figure, they immediately go to that black robe. And you're looking at that black robe. And as you're looking at that black robe, your eyes eventually they begin to work their way up. And when they work their way up, you then see a face. the face of the person that's wearing those black robes. But it's not what you would expect. It's a face that's smiling at you. It's a friendly face. And in fact, it's a friendly face because 
It's a known face. It's your friend. And it's not just a friend. It's not just some acquaintance from long ago. It's not just one of those people that we just kind of call friends today, but not exactly are they close friends. This is your very best of best friends. And they're smiling at you. And in that moment, every anxiety disappears. Every fear disappears. Because your friend is the judge. On that last day when the sheep appeared before the judgment throne of Christ, it will be a friend that looks back at them. Not just a friend, but the very best of friends. And not only the very best of friends, but this very best of friends that is also your Savior. The one who is going to rule regarding you as the one who paid the price. There's no fear there. It's a day for rejoicing and a day for dancing in the streets. But for the goats, it's not so. The one who could have been their Savior is their judge. And isn't that one of the things that makes this end time scene so incredibly painful? Is that the very one who could have been their savior will be their judge. J.C. Ryle commented along these lines. He said, to be condemned in the day of judgment by anyone would be awful. But to be condemned by him who would have saved them will be awful indeed, or I would say all the more awful. It's curious how Jesus says the goats and the sheep are identified here before this throne of judgment and the end times. He says it twice. He says, for I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison. Both the goats and the sheep see him in these conditions. The difference is, is that Jesus says they respond differently to what they see in Jesus. The sheep see him hungry and feed him. They see him thirsty and they give him something to drink. They see him naked and they give him clothes. They see him sick or imprisoned and they visit him. But not the goats. That's the difference. What's really fascinating to me is that both of them make it clear that they're, they're not rejecting the, the judgment that has been rendered upon them. They both rather respond with questions about, when did we ever even see this, Jesus? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? When did we see you as a sojourner? When did we see you imprisoned? And he gives the same response to both. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, or you did not do it to me. The goats and the sheep are both distinguished by how they treated Jesus by virtue of how they treated, quote, the least of these, end quote. 
Well, now that becomes very important to us, doesn't it? I want to know who the least of these are. Because if I'm being judged on the last day based upon how I treat the least of these, I want to know who the least of these are. Seems pretty important. Who are the least of these? Unfortunately, this passage is often ripped out of context and violence is done to it and that people use it as a kind of summary passage on the need for us to extend and labor for justice for the most disenfranchised by our society, the least of these. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what he's talking about here. As D.A. Carson said, we must not think that the Bible is unconcerned for the poor and the oppressed, but that is not the center of interest here. So who are the least of these? Well, Jesus gives us a hint in that he qualifies who the least of these are. He says, the least of these, my brothers. Is he speaking about the, the brotherhood of all of mankind? No, Jesus never speaks that way in the Gospels. So what does he mean by my brothers? Well, let's look at context. If you go back to Matthew 12, the very same book. Flip back to Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. Jesus says this, While He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and His brothers stood outside asking to speak to Him. But He replied to the man who told Him, Who is My mother and who are My brothers? And stretching out His hand toward His disciples, He said, Here are My mother and My brothers, for whoever does the will of My Father in heaven is My brother and sister and mother. Who are the least of these? His brothers. Who are His brothers? His disciples. Who are His disciples? Whoever does the will of His Father in heaven. These are those who are the least of these. So what does Jesus mean by these brothers of His, disciples, being hungry and thirsty and naked and imprisoned? Well, He's talking about sending out His disciples into the world to share the good news of Christ. And then often what is accompanied, you and I going into the world sharing the good news, are these kind of trials and these kind of sufferings. And so Jesus is saying, that as people respond to His disciples who are spreading the good news of the gospel, they are responding to Christ Himself. As they are neglected, as they are maligned, as they are persecuted, so Christ is maligned, so as Christ is neglected, so Christ is persecuted. As they are blessed, as they receive, so Christ is blessed, and so Christ receives. Christ so identifies with His people, is so in union with His people, that He says that when His people suffer, it is tantamount to Him suffering. That when they experience pains, it is tantamount to Him experiencing pains. That when they are bearing sorrows, it is tantamount to Him bearing sorrows. And when they receive and when they are blessed, it is tantamount to Him receiving and being blessed. Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? He said to 
Saul on that Damascus road. Was Saul persecuting Christ? No. Yes. Because he was persecuting his disciples. Friends, this means that your sufferings for the sake of Christ, they are never lost. They're never lost on Him. Our King is not blind. Justice hasn't disappeared. There's not a lost job, a, a shed tear, a bruised face, a shattered family, a scarred back, a life lost for the sake of Christ that remains unaccounted for. Because as it is done to His disciples, so it is done to Him. And people are judged based upon this. It identifies sheep from goats. Having said that, I don't want to rehearse the whole sermon from last week. But if you didn't hear it, you need to hear these two sermons together. Very clear, as we spoke about last week, you and I are not justified by works. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone. That is, we're declared righteous before the throne of God by grace alone through faith alone. This is not a result of works. And yet, it is also true that though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, yet we have a faith that is never alone. Where there is faith, good works flow from it. So the mercy Jesus speaks of in this passage, it's evidential of the sheep or the righteous person's saving faith. It's not causal. It is evidential. They respond this way to the disciples of Christ because they have responded this way to the person of Christ. A person changed in heart is a person changed in life. As one commentator said, as people respond to his disciples or brothers and align themselves with their distress and afflictions, they align themselves with the Messiah who identifies with them. True disciples of Jesus not only love Christ, they love His people. They serve their fellow sheep with mercy and compassion. And though you have a lot of opportunity to do this right now. Brothers and sisters that you disagree with or you can't quite understand. To love them by extending mercy and compassion. As I've said to you before, we are not only saved unto Christ, we are saved unto one another. And as I've said to you over and over the greatest gauge you can have of your maturity in Christ or your love for Christ is the barometer of how much you love His people. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this in his commentary upon Galatians 5. He said, faith must, of course, be sincere. It must 
Be a faith that performs good works through love. He said, if faith lacks love, it is not true faith. Idle faith is not justifying faith. Luther, in fact, will call this, quote, the whole life of a Christian. Inwardly, it consists in faith towards God. Outwardly, in love towards our fellow men. Do you love His people? Do you love Christ's people? If you love Christ, you do. You show mercy and compassion towards them. Finally, we shall each receive judgment according to our identity. We shall each receive judgment according to our identity. You'll notice that there are only two possibilities here. Only two. Eternal punishment, eternal life. There's no halfway. There's no combination. There's no third option. Only two options. Eternal punishment or eternal life. Every single person that is gathered before His throne, which is every single person ever in creation, shall receive one of two judgments. Eternal punishment or eternal life. The goats receive eternal punishment. He says it is a place in verse 41 of eternal fire. It was, he says, prepared for the devil and his angels, but now it is going to be populated by these goats as well. They are going to be sent to the fires of hell. Now this is unpleasant, but it doesn't make it untrue very true. And you and I, we do no one, no one any favors not talking about hell. We do no one any favors skirting over it as if it is not some reality. No, it's very real. It's a real place. It's a real punishment. It's a real destination for every goat Jesus does not have any qualms about speaking about hell. In fact, the word Gehenna, which we often translate in the New Testament as hell, it is used every single time that it's used except one in the book of James. It's found on the lips of Jesus. It's Jesus that's speaking about hell. Jesus says it is eternal. Notice that in verse 41, He says it is an eternal fire. That word used for eternal is the same word that he uses then in verse 46 to speak of the inheritance of the saints, that the righteous, the sheep, they shall receive an eternal inheritance, an eternal life. Same word, eternal death, eternal life, eternal fire, eternal life. Same word, eternal there are many Christians throughout the ages who have looked at this and they've said, this is just too detestable. This is too offensive that God would send some to eternal fire. 
And since it is fire, it must be that it's not eternal. It must be that it extinguishes the person, that the person is eventually annihilated in the fire, and somehow that makes it more palatable. But listen, it's the same word, eternal fire, eternal life, same word. If there is no eternal punishment for the wicked, if that ceases, then the blessing for the righteous ceases because they are both eternal. And it's the same word that is used to speak of God in passages like Revelation 15.7 and 19.3 to speak of His eternality, that He is everlasting, everlasting, everlasting. The fires of hell are everlasting. The life in heaven is everlasting, even as God Himself is everlasting. Tertullian, an early church father from the second century, rightfully said this. He said, the paradoxical character of this fire by which God is able to destroy both body and soul in hell is that it kills without annihilating either of those substances. It brings about a never-ending killing. And that's right. It's a never-ending killing. Others will say, well, Jesus' words are not to be taken literally here because we are also told that hell is darkness. So if He is speaking about fire here, and other places we're told that hell is darkness, those are two things that are incompatible. They are two things that are exclusive terms. You can't have fire and also have darkness. And so they say Jesus is using colorful speech here to simply convey the burning wrath of God. That's all that He is doing. Maybe. It seems quite possible and probable in my mind for fire and darkness to cohabitate in hell for all of eternity. If God can cause a bush to burn with fire and not be consumed, He can surely cause a fire to burn and not shed light. Regardless, it is an eternal fire. It is the eternal wrath of God being poured out day after day after day for all of eternity. Two judgments, eternal punishment, second eternal life. The sheep receive the judgment of eternal life. It will not be a frightful day. It will be a day of rejoicing and dancing in the streets without the drunkenness. On that day, Jesus tells us in verse 34, we will hear these words. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This has been the Father's plan. It's been the Father's plan since the foundation of the world that He would bring in all of His elect, all of the sheep, that He would gather them all together and that He would usher them into His presence for all of eternity. It's His eternal plan. 
And it's been His eternal plan that He has been preparing this kingdom for us. All of this that we enjoy here, He made in six days. He's been preparing this for all of eternity. What joys, what delights, and what blessings await the sheep. And the chief joy and the chief delight and the chief blessing will be that we will be welcomed in the presence of our Savior, into the presence of our King, into the presence of our God, into the presence of our Father. That's what he says in verse 34. Come. Come. Imagine a holy God saying to sinners such as you and I in a holy place such as heaven, saying, come. No barrier. No restraint. No hindrance. Come. Come, says the Savior, because I have paid the penalty, so the judgment has been ruled. I paid the penalty, so you can come. And as we come, we come into an ever-abiding, everlasting relationship with our Father in His presence and increasing amounts of joy and delight for all of eternity. Come, he says. That's my question for you this morning. Have you come? Have you come so that on that last day when you stand before that judgment throne, he points at you and he says, come. Because you've already come to the Son. If that's true for you on the last day, then you will be ushered in with the rest of us into the fullness of your joy, into the fullness of relationship with your Father and with your Savior for all of eternity. Have you come? Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are thankful that you've shared with us the bad news that we might driven, be driven to the good news. We might know the realities of the fires of hell. That we might be pointed to the realities of everlasting, eternal, joy-filled life. Oh, Father, we Pray for every soul that is in this room, that is in the room across the hall. No doubt there are those sitting here today that sit here as goats, as those who are cursed. But you take those hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. They listened to the sermon and found no delight and no longing for that day when they shall be with the Son face to face. 
Oh, would you reveal the delight of that to them this morning? May they fall in love with the only Savior of men and women and children. And hear those words on the last day come. For those of us in Christ, may we look forward to your return, O Lord, with great anticipation, knowing that it shall not be a frightful day for us, but a day of singing and rejoicing and dancing. And it will be but the beginning. Help us to live in light of your coming. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.